This week, Parshat Noach, I would like to discuss the story found in Bereshit Perikid Aleph, the story colloquially known as Dorha Flaga, or sometimes called the story of Migdal Bavel. The Torah begins here in Perikid Aleph by telling us the story of a group of city builders. In the introduction to the story in Perikid Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, the Torah says as follows, and the entire land spoke one language, they were unified in speech. And here is the setting, they traveled from the east, they found the valley in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then after this short two-verse introduction, the Torah moves on to the main body of the story and informs us of the plans or the actions of this group of people, of humanity, the people we will call the city builders. And the Torah says as follows, A man said to his friend, Let us uh, make bricks, and then we will fire these bricks in a kiln. And then these bricks became in place of stone, and uh, the material they found they were going to use as mortar. And then they said one to the other, they didn't just want bricks or mortar, they of course wanted to do something with it. Let us build a city, umigdal, and a tower. So the people have a plan. Um, and they begin to build this city, and they begin to build this tower, and their idea is, is that they're going to have a name, a shame, whatever that means, and this will somehow apparently preserve their unity. They will not be scattered upon the face of the earth. Now, this seems like a relatively innocent undertaking, um, after all. Um, it seems normal for humankind to want to build themselves a city. However, God does not view this in a particularly positive light. And at this point, we reach a kind of turn in the story, and we come to uh, the reaction. And one might say that God's reaction is not particularly positive. Torah says in Pasokei, God descended to see the city. Now, um, at first glance, this might seem particularly innocent. God simply comes down to observe. But in fact, a, a bit of uh, knowledge about a story later on uh, in Bereshit uh, would indicate to us that the term Vayerit is not um, a completely innocent and neutral term. Later on in Bereshit, in Parakut Chet, when God reveals his plan uh, to Avraham as to how he's going to deal with the Sodomites uh, and the evil that they have wrought, um, the Torah test says as follows in Parakut Chet Pasuk Kaf. Oh, the cry that arises from Sdom Vamra is quite great. Um, and then skipping to Pasuk Kaf Aleph, Erdana I will go down and see. Um, here again, the idea of God's descent. And the idea being is that God descends in the case of Sdom to witness, to observe, as preface to his passing judgment, as preface to punishment. Well, so too here in the story of Migdal Bavel. Um, in the story of Dorha Flaga, in Parakut Aleph Pasokei, Vayered Hashem Lerot, God's descent is for the purpose of observing, it's for the purpose of passing judgment, it's a preface to punishment. In other words, God does not view the city builders' actions as completely innocent, he descends in order to observe as a preface to punishment. Now, um, this idea of God uh, engaging in punishment of the city builders is rather obvious as we move along through the story. Because in the end of the day, what does God do? Well, in Pasuk Chet, After um, 
uh, planning to confuse their language, the Torah tells us in Pasukhet that God scatters them across the face of the entire Aretz, and they cease to build the city. Well, the people wanted to build the city. God then engages in an action which causes them to cease building the city. Clearly, the building of the city did not find favor in God's eyes. And here, we seem to have some sort of structure of sin and punishment, where if the first part of the story details um, the sin of the people in their building of the city. The latter part, beginning in Pasuke and moving on towards the end of it, is God's punishing of the people. He descends and then stops them from building the city. Now, perhaps the best proof for this notion of sin and punishment as the major axes or dynamic of the story is the language. And I think a lot of the language here fits uh, or can be connected up to the idea of measure for measure, kind of the classic hallmark of punishment that we have in Tanakh, the idea of what's referred to in Lashon Chazal as Midah keneged midah punishment. Now, why do I say this? Well, remember, the people, in making their plan, uh, in the first part of the story, in Pasuk Gimel, had said, Hava, Vayamru ish el Hava nil bina levenim let us together, Hava, let us make bricks. And again, in Pasuk Dalad, immediately afterwards, Vayamru, Hava nivne lanu ir, let us uh, make a city. And when God descends to observe and to take action, well, the exact same term appears in Pasuk Zayin. So God's Hava seems to come in response uh, to the people's Hava. And this action, reaction, this measure for measure, again, seems to be a hallmark and indication that we're talking about punishment. And this is, of course, not the only example of this. The people have been afraid... Pen nafutz is what they say in Pasuk Dalad. And what exactly does God do in Pasuk Chet in verse 8? He gives them exactly what they were afraid of. Again, apparently action, reaction, measure for measure. And of course, if at the beginning of the story they were safa'achat, they were one language, and that was what allowed their cooperation, that's exactly um, what God uh, rejects or responds against. And in the end of Pasuk Zion it says as follows, um, let us confuse um, or multiply their languages so that one man will not understand the going back to the of Pasuk Aleph and of course the name of the city in the end of the day God confused their God confused the language of all of the uh, land so the idea of confusing their language as the nature of the punishment, and the idea of um, the place being called Bavel from the language of Balal, uh, of confusion of language, again also supports the idea of action, reaction, measure for measure, measure punishment. So to put this all together, it seems relatively clear that what we have here is a sin and punishment narrative, where the first part um, details the sin of the people, and the second part details the punishment of the people. The problem is, and this is the classic problem uh, in terms of understanding this story, is that it's not really clear what exactly is the sin of the city builders here. What is their great hate that God needs to descend to punish them? What is the great problem in the building of the city that God needs to stop the building of the city? What is the great difficulty or, or sin in their speaking one language that God needs for them to speak many different languages. And really, to some extent, what the chayt here is altogether unclear. What I would like to do 
is to explore a few different possible approaches to this question of the nature of the sin of the city builders. Um, and I would like to begin by starting with Rashi. Uh, Rashi presents a very interesting interpretation based upon a series of Midrashim that Rashi synthesizes here. Commenting on the terms Varim Achadim found in the first verse of the story, Rashi tells us as follows. What does Dvarim Achadim mean? Ba'u be'itza achat. They came with one unified council. Dvarim Achadim doesn't mean uh, unified words uh, but or unified speech, but it rather means unified council. Itza is the term Rashi uses. V'amru, and they said, lo kol haimenu she'ivor lo elyonim. Um, and this means something like it is... Uh, not pleasing to us that God should rule in the upper realms. Uh, let us go up into the sky and make a war against him. Now, this is a very, very interesting midrash. And the idea of rakia uh, found uh, in the midrash that Rashi cites, of course, goes back to uh, Pasuk Dalet. If we return to Pasuk Dalet for a moment, the Torah there says, uh, it records the intention of the city builders and says, let us build a city, and a tower, and the head of the tower will be up in the Shamayim. And the idea here, according to the Midrash that Rashi cites, is this just doesn't mean that it's a tall tower, but somehow or another, this is a, a tower that is supposed to be able to reach up into the Rakia. And the purpose of this tower is that um, maybe perhaps archers will go up on top of it. Or maybe some other form of war will be conducted with this tower. But the tower is a siege tower. In the Midrashic imagination, or in the story that the Midrash tells us here, that Rashi cites, um, the people are interested in conducting a, a physical war against God. And the tower um, is, in some sense, a siege tower that stands in the middle of the city. And they are besieging God so that they can uh, go and conquer the Elyonim. Now, before coming back to analyzing and understanding uh, this story, um, we should add to it uh, another Rashi found in another place, actually found back in Parak Yud, um, where Rashi um, gives us another aspect of the story of war against God as an understanding of the fate of the city builders. In Bereshit Parak Yud, the Torah details the descendants of, of Noah. And along the way, um, it tells us the story of a man named Nimrod. In Parak Yud, Pasukhet, the Torah says as follows. Bekush Yaladit Nimrod, and one of the sons uh, of Noah gave birth to Nimrod. No, uh, pardon me, and Kush, pardon me, and Kush gave birth to Nimrod. And then, Hu Hechel Yot Gibar Ba'aretz, uh, he um, began to be a mighty man or a hero uh, in the land. He was a mighty hunter, a gibor tzayid lefnei Hashem in front of God. Therefore it is said, One can be or was like Nimrod, a gibor tzayid, a mighty hunter in front of God. And then in Pasukud, Vahitihi Reshet Mamlachto Bavel, and the beginnings of his kingdom was Bavel, Ve'erach, Va'akad, Ve'chalna, Ve'eretz Shinar, and the land of Shinar. Now, um, there are quite a few interesting aspects uh, 
to the to this short piece of text, these three psukim here. And uh, I think the first and most interesting aspect is its very existence. If one would scan through Parak Yud, uh, through chapter 10, one would realize that really, most people there are just mentioned. Uh, there, in fact, there are 70 names mentioned in Parak Yud, and these 70 names seem to, be, seem to symbolize or represent the 70 families or the 70 nations that humankind eventually come to be made up of. And there are very few names or people who get any kind of detail or that we're told anything about them. But in the case of Nimrod, uh, we get quite a bit of detail. We're told that, A, he's a gibor tzayid lifnei Hashem. Uh, we're told that people will say that, oh, you can be or should be or one was, once was like, one was like Nimrod, a gibor tzayid lifnei Hashem. And we're also told that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom, Reshit Mamlachto, uh, was Bavel, and then these other cities, and they were all in the land of Shinar. Now, of course, you really can't miss the connection here to our chapter, to Parakut Aleph, because Bavel is, of course, the name given to the city of the city builders. In Parakut Aleph, Pasuk Tet, we're told, Al-Kain Kra Shema Bavel, therefore the name of the city was called Bavel, Kisham Balal Hashem Sfat And we see here there's a connection between the little story of Nimrod in chapter 10 and um, the city of the city builders, um, which is known as Bavel. Now, of course, another connection between the short story of Nimrod and the story of chapter 11 of Parakid Aleph of the city builders is the term Shinar. All of this takes place in the land of Shinar. In Parakid Aleph, Pasuk Bet, we're told, Vahibin Asam Mikedam Eimtu Bikab Eretz Shinar. This takes place in the land of Shinar. And of course, Nimrod and his cities were in the land of Shinar. Now, based upon all of this complex of problems, in other words, one, the very detailing of some details about Nimrod, and two, the question of what is the connection between this short story and Parakut Aleph, Rashi, uh, based upon Midrashim, again, uh, relates to the question of the war against God. And Rashi in Parakut Aleph, Pasachet, says as follows. Liot Gibor, referring to Nimrod, Lehamrid kol haolam al hakadosh baruchu ba'atzad dor haflaga. To cause the entire word to rebel uh, against uh, God with the, uh, through the advice or through the advice he gave in Darha Flaga. And here, there's another play in words, uh, uh, on words in Rashi here. Lahamrid, to rebel. Why is he called Nimrod? He is called Nimrod from language of rebellion. Meaning, he was the leader of the rebellion of the city builders against God. Um, and on the term Gibor Tzayed, Rashi states, Sad atan shel briot bepiv. It wasn't that he hunted animals. Sad atan shel briot. He hunted or stalked uh, the intention or the minds of other peoples bepiv with his mouth. Umatan limrod bamakom and to cause them incite them to rebel against God. So overall, if we put the two rashis and the two prakim together, we have this kind of fantastical midrashic story um, based upon the personality of Nimrod and the story of the city builders. We have here Nimrod, who is the leader of a certain group of people. He desires to rebel against God and he incites the city builders uh, in this place called Babel to build a, a city that is going to contain this tower and the tower is comparable uh, to a siege tower, uh, almost in the physical sense, in the uh, imagination of the Midrash and is cited here in Rashi. And there's this kind of rebellion against God and of course, God's punishment is understandable. If the people want to conduct war against God, God punishes them measure for measure he scatters them out, he destroys their city, and um, he punishes them for their actions. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is, this is all really fine and well as it goes. 
we have her this midrash, we have her this story about rebellion, the war against God. But this, of course, seems rather far from the simple sense of the text here. Um, although the midrash can convert the tower into a siege tower, and Rashi can convert the name Nimrod into um, uh, a meaning of rebellion based upon the stem Memresh Dalid, uh, which can mean merit, which can mean rebellion. Still, there's a certain sense that it's not clear how this relates to the simple story of the city builders. Um, after all, there's no mention of the war, there's no mention of the tower, and of course, did they actually really think that they could conduct a physical war against God? Is that how we should understand Rashi and the Midrash? The point being is that what we need to do is to realize that the Midrash and Rashi are trying to un- unveil a deeper dynamic of the story here to tell us that there is some sort of chet here, yet still we haven't really, some sort of war against God, and still we can say that we still really truly haven't understood what this war against God is that's conducted by the city builders in the story of Migdal Babel and Doraflaga. And this is something we have to understand a little bit deeper. Before returning to the interpretation of Rashi and the Midrash, and the significance of the idea of a conflict between God and mankind, between mankind and God, of a war against Hashem, and perhaps the roots of this idea in the text, I would like to briefly move over to the other extreme um, of the span of interpretation, to the interpretation of Ibn Ezra, who to some extent attempts to minimize uh, the chait of the builders of the city. Here in his comments um, on the phrase found in Pasuk Dalid, Havan Nivne Lanu Ir the plans of the city builders, Ibn Ezra says as follows The Torah already revealed to us their desire and their full intention in building a great large city for them to dwell in. And to build a big tower. And the purpose of the tower, and here we should pay careful attention to Ibn Ezra's words, it's of course not a siege tower or anything like that, but simply for the tower to be a sign. The tower is a symbol of the city. L'shem, also as a name, a reminder. Again, the idea of being a symbol of a city, a way to remember the city, symbolize the city. L'tihila, and for praise. And also people say what a great city it was. L'dat makoma ir. And furthermore, there's a practical purpose. Um, not just a social and communal purpose, but a practical purpose. L'dat makoma ir l'holicham um, so that uh, shepherds who walked far away from the city would be able to find their way back home by seeing the sign, the symbol of the city. And likewise, uh, their name would last after them, meant all the days the tower lasted. So Ibn Ezra, in interpreting Pasuk Dalad, verse 4, he takes a very simple, limited approach. There are certain practical advantages to, advantages to the city and the tower um, that it prevents people from getting lost. There are certain communal advantages. It provides cohesion. And of course, there are even certain sociological and historical advantages that it preserves the identity, the name, and the fame of the city forever and ever. And basically, the idea is that the people want to remain one coherent entity. Penafuts, they want to remain a coherent entity on the practical plane, on the social plane, or on the historical plane. Now, this, of course, 
begs the question then, well, what about God's reaction? Why does God rea- react so harshly? What about the Vayei Raid? What about the Midah Keneged punishment? Midah Keneged Midah punishment that we talked about previously? What exactly is the sin here according to Ibn Ezra? Well, Ibn Ezra doesn't relate to this too much, except in one brief uh, comment of his, later on, on Pasuk Zion, um, where the Torah says that uh, Hashem hefitzam, uh, that Hashem scattered them. Commenting on the phrase Hashem hefitzam, Ibn Ezra says, Vuhu tov lahem. And this is good for them. V'chein amar umilu ta'aretz. Now, um, what Ibn Ezra uh, is quoting here is a pasuk found previously in Perak Aleph of Sefer Breshit. In Perak Aleph, um, pasuk kafchet, when God gives mankind their first bracha, their first blessing, the Torah says as follows: Vayvarach otam Elohim, vayomer lahem Elohim, pru uruvu umilu ta'aretz v'kivshua urdu bidgat hayam u'ba'of hashemayim u'b'chochayat chayah ha'omeset al ha'aretz. Um, mankind is supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill up the world. They have a mission uh, to spread out over the world. And Ibn Ezra, in citing this verse, uh, basically informs us that the problem of the city builders, of the Dora Flaga, of the people who built the Tower of Babel, is that they didn't understand what God wanted from them. Um, meaning the problem here is, is that they are concerned about penafot. They want to stay together. They won't, don't want to fill up the world and, and conquer it and spread out over it. And in this sense, they diverge from the divine world. There's some sort of, I wouldn't even necessarily call it a sin, but there's some sort of error, misunderstanding what being human or what humanity is all about. And it's precisely because of this understanding, this misunderstanding on their part, that God scatters them out in Pasuket Vayafetz Hashem Otam Yishem Al Pnei Kala Aretz V'Achilu V'Nota Ir God scatters them and as Ibn Ezra to return to his comment says V'Hashem Efitzam V'Utov Lahem and God scattered them and this is good for them V'Chein Amar Umiluot Aretz and that is what it says you should fill up the world meaning that somehow this is not about sin and punishment but this is rather about some sort of misunderstanding of human destiny and God moving human destiny back over to its proper track uh, uh, of doing the thing that is right for humankind by forcing them to spread out and be scattered over the face of the earth. Um, Now, there is much food for thought here and certainly this idea of um, what proper human destiny is all about is it somehow better served uh, through the communal existence in the city? Or is it somehow better served uh, by uh, being scattered out over the face of the earth? Is something that's interesting to think about a little bit. Um, but it's a little bit beyond the parameters of our discussion today. And I would like to focus more on, on the coherence of Ibn Ezra as, as a textual interpretation. I think here, on the one hand we can say, that Ibn Ezra is very close to the sense of the text uh, in Pasuk Dalit. It's about community, practicality, having a central rallying point, um, having a social, sociological, historical cohesion and fame. And that's really all the text is about. There is nothing in the text about siege towers or wars against God and the like. And in this sense, Ibn Ezra 
very closely follows uh, the simple interpretation of the text. Yet, on the other hand, as noted earlier on, there is a heavy dosage of sin and punishment motif to this section of the Torah. God descends, God stops them from building the city, uh, God thwarts their desire, um, and there's the midah keneged midah language. There's the measure for measure language. There's the reaction, uh, action, reaction. There's the hava, hava. There's the pen nafutz vayafetz. And there is, of course, the safa achat versus balal Hashem sfat kol And if there really is this heavy dose of measure for measure, this sense of reward, this sense of sin and punishment here in the parsha, I think it is a bit difficult to say that Ibn Ezra is totally correct that there's nothing more here than a misunderstanding, than an error about what constitutes the best human destiny. And I think we do have to work a little bit harder and try to locate some particular sin that, or some complex of sin that uh, the builders of the city are, are guilty of. Now, in order to do so, I would like to try to develop a, a third uh, path of interpretation, a, a third direction, one based um, a little bit upon Ramban and perhaps also some extra-biblical evidence, one which I hope will give us a, a different reading of the parsha, and in the end bring us back to some of the important ideas raised both by Ibn Ezra and Rashi in the Midrash, especially Rashi in the Midrash in their development of the concept of a, a war by mankind over and against God. Um, to do so, let us turn to a very interesting and very brief comment of Ramban back in Perak Yud. If you remember when we discussed Perak Yud previously, uh, we pointed out that Nimrod gets a little bit more room than some of the other figures, uh, some of the other names in, in chapter 10. And Rashi and the Midrash had given us this whole story about Nimrod leading the rebellion against uh, God. Ramban uh, viciously attacks this, thinks it's not uh, the simple interpretation, and uh, in its stead uh, presents an alternative. And the comment of Ramban uh, there in chapter 10 uh, reads uh, as, as follows. And it's correct in my opinion. Uh, remember the phrase in the text was uh, Pardon me, no, that's not correct. In Pasukhet there, in Parakyud, what it says as follows, Parakyud, Pasukhet, V'kosh uh, so Nimrod began to be a gibor, a, a, a mighty, a mighty one. And then afterwards, of course, we have the phrase gibor tzayd lefnei Hashem, and then we have the notion of reshit mamlachto. Now, what Ramban says uh, is as follows, going back to Ramban. Hu hechiliot moshel bigvurato ala anashim, vuhamolech He began to rule uh, with his might over other men. Gibor, uh, or Hechel, the old Gibor Ba'aretz in the text, should be understood by Ramban as a reference to Nimrod's political might. He became the first leader, the first emperor. And as Ramban goes on in his comment, we realize that according to Ramban, Nimrod's political might is connected up with another type of might he has. He was the first emperor, literally. He was the first emperor, literally. 
v'lo malach melech. There were no wars and there were no kings. V'gavat chilat al anshei bavel ad shemalach alehem. First, he uh, triumphed over the people of Bavel through his military might. He then uh, 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 accrued political might. He appointed himself king. And he moved to Ashur and did according to his desire. Uh, and he built fortified cities with his might and his strength. Shemban tells us that Nimrod was the first emperor, the first king, the first fighter of wars, the first military and political leader or perhaps dictator that existed. He invented, organized uh, warcraft and probably organized statecraft and eventually he built a military empire. Uh, and this great empire, Reshit Mamakta, was Bavel. It began in Bavel. And to some extent that is the story of uh, Nimrod and, and the city of Bavel. Um, now, how does uh, this help us at all with Parakut Aleph, chapter 11, the story of the, of the city builders. Well, in an interesting way, um, it might help us by realizing that uh, Ramban refers here uh, at the end of his comment in Parakut Pasuk Tet that Reshit Mamachta was Bavel, Va'arach, Va'akad, Vikalna. And this, of course, uh, is a list of many of the ancient great cities of Mesopotamia. Um, in other words, um, what uh, Ramban is telling us is that Nimrod organized, or Nimrod symbolizes, the great cities of Mesopotamia, their might, their power, um, their wonder. And to some extent, um, and to some extent, the story of Parakir Aleph as a story about a place named Bavel should be understood as a story about the great cities the great cultures, the great civilizations of, of ancient Mesopotamia. Now, uh, how does this help us? Well, here um, might come in, uh, we might um, be helped with a, a bit of uh, evidence uh, known to us uh, through archaeology. These cities that the Ramban lists here uh, at the end of his comment in Perakut Pasuk Tet, Bavel, Arach, Akkad, well, there's been a lot of archaeological work done in Mesopotamia, and we found uh, many of these places, ancient cities, or, or their parallels. Now, many of these cities have, have towers uh, in the middle of them. These towers are actually not exactly towers. They're more of something in the form of a step pyramid, kind of a pyramid that's made, cut out on the sides with, with steps uh, along the side of it. And what's very interesting is that um, there are inscriptions on these step pyramids. They often have a temple at the top. There are inscriptions at, on these pyramids. And very often the name of the city or the name of the king, the shame, is inscribed in a prominent place. So I think on some level the story in Parakut Aleph is modeling itself on the cities of Bavel, the cities of Mesopotamia, uh, and cities of the like. And the idea is, is that these cities had um, towers in them and they had the name of the king or the city or the history inscribed in them. And these were mighty cultural productions. These were the greatest... Uh, cultural achievements, uh, the urban city of the ancient world that mankind was capable of. And I think part of what we're supposed to learn from the story of uh, Parakut Aleph 
is that if we talk about the glory, the wonder, and the power of the ancient cities of Mesopotamia, the greatest achievement uh, of the ancient world to some extent, or one of the greatest achievements, is of course, well, of course nothing compared to the power of HaKadosh Baruch, compared to the power of God. God descends, God is displeased, God scatters them. Bavel is in fact, according to the story of Parakit Aleph, not uh, a great empire or a great achievement. It is in fact a result of God scattering man across the world of God, confusing man's language. The story on Parakit Aleph makes the point that the power of the greatest cultures and the greatest civilizations is in fact nothing compared to the power of the Almighty. And I think this is one interesting point about Parakit Aleph. But I think, in fact, uh, there's uh, much more uh, to it than this. If we go back to the term shame and we concentrate on that a little bit here. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, in these cities, uh, on the towers or on the pyramids that were located at the center of the city, where a temple, uh, usually uh, to the divinity of the city, was, was located at the top, um, at the bottom, uh, there was some sort of seal or numerous places that could be seals, which contained the name... Uh, of the king or the name of the god or wherever the case uh, may be in, in the particular city. Um, and the point is, is that the people of the city, um, the existence of the city, and the building of the culture of that city was dedicated to this name. It was dedicated to the name of themselves, uh, to the name of building their civilization, to the name of building their culture, uh, to the name of their god. Now, I think this forms a kind of market contrast to another story that we have um, in Sefer Breshit. I think a contrast which can help us wrap things together here. Um, Another story that we have in Sefer Breshit, exactly one chapter uh, afterwards. Uh, I'm referring to Perak Yudbet, chapter 12 of Sefer uh, Breshit, um, where uh, God appears to Abraham and tells him to, to leave where he is and to go to a particular land. And we're told there that Avram leaves to go to Canaan and he, and he goes to a particular place and then to, he goes to a, a, a another place and then he comes there uh, in Pasuk Zion and God appears to him. And so Avram builds a Mizbeach to God who has appeared to him. And then he moves his tent and he goes to a second place and when he comes to between Beit El and I, even Shem Mizbeach Lashem, he builds a Mizbeach Tashem, Vikra B'Shem Hashem, and he calls out uh, in the name of Hashem. The phrase used here in the Torah is Shem Hashem, name of Hashem. Avram's existence is not dedicated to his own name. Avram's existence is not dedicated to human achievement. But Avram's existence is dedicated to following the word of God. Avram's existence is dedicated to celebrating the name of God. Avram's existence is dedicated to Shem Hashem. And I think the contrast between uh, Avram and the city builders in the previous parak in Parakit Aleph could not be greater. In the ancient cities of Mesopotamia, um, in the story of Parakit Aleph, the people have what we would call a anthrocentric orientation, a person or people oriented uh, uh, orientation. They are focused upon themselves. They are interested in their own glory, in their own achievements, in their own city, in their own history, in their own future. 
Uh, it is their name, their shame, that concerns them. As opposed to Avraham Avinu. Avram is not interested in his own history, uh, his own culture, uh, his own grandeur, or his own civilization, but he is interested in celebrating and dedicating himself to Shem Hashem, uh, of following after the Word of God and calling out in the Shem Hashem. I think, perhaps, this may be some of the problem in Parakudalaf in the story of the city builders. Um, if we return to um, Pasuk Vav, uh, in Parakir Aleph, I think this might even in some sense be said explicitly in the text. Vayomer Hashem hein am echad lekulam hachilam la'asot. This is what they have begun to do. What have they done? They haven't done much. They've just built a city. They've just celebrated their own civilization. They've just attempted to build a unified and glorious culture. But... God's point here is, is that if their concentration, if their focus is on Shmam, is on their own name, if their orientation is anthrocentric, then inevitably they will deteriorate into sin and severe sin. On some level, there is no greater war against God. There is no greater declaration uh, against God. There is no greater siege tower against God to return to the image of Rosh and the Midrash than that of celebrating one's own name and exclusively one's own name. So God says, this is what they've done already. They're going to be choteh. Let me scatter them out. So the idea is that, yes, there's punishment here, but it's also punishment for their own good. Because what is the problem? The problem is the glorification of human name as opposed to divine name. And therefore, God punishes the city builders, disrupts their culture, and scatters them out. And I think the point is, just to sum this up, that part of the challenge that this story leaves us with is that of how to build a human culture that somehow has Shem Hashem, that is Koreh B'Shem Hashem, as opposed to simply glorifying the name of humanity.